Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi. This is Father Mark Poulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When Peter approaches Jesus to ask, what then will there be for us? His question betrays two sins. First, his belief that he has done the right thing. And second, his expectation that he deserves a reward for his actions. In his response, Jesus tests both Peter and the addressee of Matthew's gospel. Is it a reward to be seated in power? But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Richard and I discuss the gospel of Matthew, chapter 19, verses 27 to 30. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 340 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We have repeatedly insisted that the Roman household, co-opted by the Pauline school, is not incidental to the content of the New Testament, but integral. We have to let that fact sink in, because if we do then we can understand how the Pauline school deals with the question of power and the way in which their handling of power judges the abuse of power in democratic societies. Americans, ever since King George, have had trouble understanding how power is supposed to function and how power can be protected from the abuse of its wielders. It's not a great movie, but... In Batman versus Superman, this is one of the main issues. Batman had a problem with Superman because Superman was accountable to nobody. He had all the power in the world. He was the most powerful being on the planet, but he was accountable to no one. He had to follow his own will and his own good heart to do the right thing. And Batman raised the impossible question, which is, what if you're wrong? What if the goodness of your heart is not as good as you think it is? Superman never was able to answer that question. Politicians have power. Police officers have power. Teachers have power. All of these individuals have power, but it's not correct to shove this power into the corner and pretend like you don't have it. It's also not okay to wield this power for the sake of your own ego. Scripture is trying to deal with this very important question, how does a human being bear power but not be abusive? 
God in Scripture is always the one that everyone is accountable to, even if you're Caesar, even if you're the king, even if you're the emperor of Babylon. You have to be responsible to somebody, and this is the basic mechanism that Scripture assumes, but Superman does not. We utter platitudes about movements without a leader, about cities without police, about classrooms where the teacher isn't the head, about organizations where no one's in charge. We talk this way all the time, but it's a lie. And when we disorganize ourselves in that way, what we are doing is inviting opportunity for abuse. Power is neither good nor bad, but it is a fact of the human condition it can't be ignored. That's the issue. And so when we try to ignore it through our idealism and our ideals and our platitudes, we pave the way for real destruction. This is the reality that Paul is dealing with in the Roman Empire. And so the real question for the New Testament school is how do we control power? How do we transform the exercise of power so that it pertains not to Caesar, but to Christ? It's a very important question. And you can't then do what theologians do and say, oh, well, yes, yes, I see now, Christ is in charge. No, what does that mean, Christ is in charge? It has to mean something. And when I say mean something, I mean it has to have street value. It can't just be a nice platitude. And so for Paul, he takes the station of the paterfamilias, subjugates that station to Jesus Christ, but maintains the power of the function paterfamilias for the household. That's why Jesus will tell the disciples here in this section of Matthew that they will be assigned a station and they will have power to judge. And it's serious. However, the pressure on the disciples is unequal with the pressure placed on those whom they judge. There is a greater onus on the one who is responsible to lead. It's not a privilege, it's a burden to lead in Scripture. And the weight of the burden is placed by the authority of Paul's teaching. When people think about Jesus Christ, they think, oh, Jesus Christ, the Lamb who is humble. They think that Jesus had a very sweet heart and he gave himself up. Jesus had power as the Son of God. He used his power correctly, and this is the question. It is not about giving up power for the sake of just letting it dissipate into the ether as if that would happen. No, that's just called a power vacuum. What he did, in fact, was he used his power, and he subjugated himself to Torah. He subjugated himself to the will of his father, whose son he was, under the aegis under the subjugation of his father, he was able to use his power correctly to teach so that when he went toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Roman Empire, 
he did not back down. He used his power to confront the ruler of this world. He went to battle. He used every strength of his body and of his mind to follow his father's will. People want to abdicate power. Why? Because they want people to leave them alone. That's really what they want. They want other people to get off their back. They don't want the burden, as you say, Father. Jesus didn't care about people getting on his back. He was ready to take them on, and that's what he's been doing with both the Pharisees and with his own disciples. He takes everybody on. Do not say that he is Jesus meek and mild. He is going toe-to-toe, and he is battling the game of Torah. He is Jesus emasculated through obedience. He is Jesus whose power is reorganized which is disempowerment in the eyes of the world. But insofar as he pertains to his father, he demonstrates that it is the father whom he fears, not Pontius Pilate. So he does abdicate power, the power that his father tells him not to exercise. That's the point. So it's tricky, and you have to pay attention to the subtleties. You can't be lazy on this point. And it's easy to be lazy and to start uttering platitudes. Because you have to then explain to me, if you have the strength to stand before a tyrant and say, I don't fear you, I fear the tyrant no one here can see. It's a different kind of power. So let's begin there in our discussion of the 12 tribes this morning. Then Peter said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? This comes on the tale of the man who owned land, who Jesus explained would not be able to enter the kingdom because he asserted, his power against the throne of the heavens by claiming to possess that which belongs to the Father. The land and everything in it belongs to God. So the man who approached Jesus just a few verses earlier overstepped his boundaries, and he wanted to have it both ways. And Jesus said, with all due respect, the only way to fulfill the Torah is to be canceled. And of course, the guy went away very sad. And that's the context, that's the backdrop against which we hear Peter's very silly question. Silly is an understatement. When one of my kids messes up and they get punished, and the other kid says, well, I didn't do that. They want some kind of reward. Jesus says to the man, give up everything and give it to the poor. And then Peter says, well, we gave up everything. What do we get then? Peter is being self-righteous. There is no other word for this. He's being self-righteous. I mean, he says, oh, well, Jesus, you said the only thing preventing that guy from having eternal life, from entering the kingdom of heaven, was that he didn't give up everything. Well, Peter and all of his friends, they gave up everything. Don't they get eternal life then? Jesus, I think right now you should just promise us eternal life because I think we really deserve it. Only when you understand the Roman household and the onus, the burden 
the pressure the gospel places on the paterfamilias in his function as the head of the household and what that responsibility means, do you understand that verse 28 is not good news for Peter? Jesus is piling more on top of giving up everything else. He's saying, it's enough for this man to give up everything else, but you're my disciple. You're an apostle. I am sending you, and I'm going to put you in charge of the 12 tribes, each of you. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And the fool hears this as a reward. The fool understands this as good news because the one whom Jesus pressures to exercise this authority for the sake of the gospel and the common good in view of the coming judgment, the one put in that position has a bad deal because there's going to be an unequal pressure placed on them and they will be judged more harshly, and they will be responsible for implementing the teaching of the gospel versus the simple responsibility of the flock to just do the teaching of the gospel. So if you hear Scripture correctly, you don't want to sit on that throne. Jesus is saying that he's going to sit on that throne in his glory and only because he's going to be emasculated by Pontius Pilate and Julius Caesar. It's not a nice theological concept. Oh, it's wonderful that in disempowerment Jesus is glorified. No, it's not wonderful. He's saying that the burden of leadership is crucifixion. You've got to hear the text. I almost wonder if the translation you're using, Father, was uncomfortable with this idea of a Jesus who was not meek, because in your translation it says glorious throne, when in fact the Greek says the throne of his glory. I think some readers feel uncomfortable with the idea that Jesus has glory on a throne because it makes him sound like a king. I think the King James translators had less of a problem imagining Jesus as a king as we do as Americans. There is a responsibility on the throne, and we have this in English. Heavy is the head that wears the crown. But in an American democracy where we think that heads should not have crowns on them, we forget about this burden of power and the fact that, as you said, with this power comes crucifixion. The crucifixion that comes with this power is the following of the law of God. If you're going to be on this throne, you're going to rule the kingdom of heaven. But the kingdom of heaven, as we've said hundreds of times before in the book of Matthew, is about following Torah and about following God's law with every step of your walk. There is no grounds for you to move this way or that to do what you want. Peter comes in saying, what do I get for giving up everything? And just like being a eunuch, you became a eunuch in order to serve the kingdom of heaven. You gave up everything in order to serve the kingdom of heaven. It's always in service of. It's not for whatever 
present you get at the end for doing the right thing. You don't get a cookie when you give up everything. You get the burden of the throne. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. For me, it's clear in this verse, Richard, that Jesus is turning away from family, tribe, dynasty. And by dynasty, I don't just mean the house that you come from, but its possession, its acquisition. And this reflects very clearly his statement earlier in Matthew, don't tell me that you're Abraham's children. God can raise up the 12 tribes from these stones. So please, once and for all, let's dismiss with pedigree and identity and tribe and social status. Because while there is a paterfamilias who does have the onus of leadership pressed upon him by Jesus Christ in the judgment. He's going to be judged alongside everybody else under one master. It's just that he'll be judged more harshly. He won't be, oh, that famous guy from that family. Oh, let's cut him some slack. He won't be the priest that gets pulled over and gets off the ticket because he's wearing a collar. He'll be ticketed a greater fine because he wears the collar. That's how it works in Scripture. The fact that Peter wants a reward, he's thinking in earthly terms. You get all kinds of rewards for sitting on this throne. You get the riches of the kingdom, and you enjoy the riches of the kingdom, but this is not Caesar's kingdom. This is a kingdom in which the king's coronation begins with a cross, and crucifixion. So yes, you're going to be rewarded a hundredfold, but it's not going to be gold encrusted. I'm just going to warn you, Peter. It's going to come with the burden of crucifixion and the entire 100% giving up of your will when you exercise this power. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Meaning, yes, you will sit in judgment over the 12 tribes and it will look like you are first and it sounds to everyone like you are first. But in the judgment, under the pressure of the gospel, before my father, the first will be last. That is a powerful, powerful threat. It's not even a threat. That is a powerful promise. Leadership is a kind of punishment in a way because you're being asked to do the impossible. You are being asked to ensure the implementation of the gospel. The pressure is on the leader. When you exercise power as the leader, as you say, it is an impossible task because you're following a gospel which places the one with power underneath the boot of the king of glory, but you still have the duty to carry out this power. It's an impossible task. You will get it wrong. And this is where the gospel and the kingdom of heaven differ from our world in that the use of power is under this king, the one who was crucified. This is the one who is going to be judging you, the one who used his power 
to bring himself to the cross. This is the challenge and this is the test that anyone with power is going to come to. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.